people want to know how to win a GPP. Joey, it's not about the players that you pick. I think what it's about is the pregame process. Let me tell you about my process, Joey. Step one, wake up 9 a.m. Eastern time, four hours to lock. Solid. Get a good start on the day. Drink two glasses of water. You know, scroll through Twitter. Make sure you didn't miss any 3 a.m. Schefter bomb standard stuff. Next step, bang out some strength work. Push up, weights, whatever it is. Not saying you got to do a full workout, but get your blood pumping. After that, drink another glass of water. Hydration is key. Follow up, Joey, start brewing up some coffee, like a full pot, not a Keurig. Real men don't use Keurigs. 9.30 at this point. Take a sh**, hop in the shower, brush your teeth. You know, take care of any physical responsibilities that your body might need you to take care of. If you're like me, you might be moving slowly in the morning. So, you know, that might take a good hour to complete. Brings us to about 10 a.m. Boom. Sitting down at my desk, preparing to make any necessary adjustments to the lineups, last minute decisions, check my exposures, et cetera, et cetera. First cup of coffee down that in 10 minutes. Second cup of coffee, we nurse that. 11.30 rolls around and actives come out. Final stretch, any impactful announcements need to be carefully considered. Lineups adjusted, updates to the cash article, you know, standard stuff. Have that all done by noon. This point, I'm venturing into cup of coffee number three. Starting to reach the point where I've consumed enough coffee to induce a mild panic attack. You know, my blood is more caffeine than iron at this point. Where we at now? Drinking some water. Got to balance out that dehydration. Fourth cup of water. And of course, fourth cup of coffee is now in play. 12.30. 30 minutes to lock. At this point, we're ads Aim down sights. Got a couple bullets left to fire. Any overlay out there. Any last minute lineups you might want to make. 12.45. Light some incense. Meditate. Clear your mind. Focus. Sitting cross-legged. 1259, eyes open, send a prayer to the big man upstairs, turn on red zone, let God do his work. <laughs> Seven and a half hours later, bank. And that's mm. all it takes. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the DFS Dose Podcast, your fix of daily fantasy sports information, strategy, and analysis. I'm your host, Ben Hover, joined as I always am by Joey Carrion. And today, we're going to be bringing you some analysis of yesterday's week one slate, takeaways, reflections, transparency, a look into our results, and maybe, Joey, just maybe, as we hinted at a moment ago, a little bit of celebration. But before we get into that, would you mind telling the people how they can support the podcast? As always, you could support the DFS Dose by subscribing or following us on every major podcast platform, which includes Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Podcast Attic, and Stitcher. And then you can go ahead and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the DFS Dose. And like Ben referenced in his uh, soliloquy about his uh, pre- slate routine you can view his cash articles every single friday on the dfsdose.com and then you can view my uh, millie maker videos and ben's cash videos on the youtube channel we also have some business to tend to with the giveaway that we ran this past week on our twitter so i'm going to select that winner right now one lucky winner is going to win 50 dollars. so i'm going to draw right now and the lucky winner of the giveaway is Isaac the Great 8 on Twitter. So shout out to him. 
he will be getting $50 and we will reach out to him on Twitter. So shout out to Isaac for that and shout out to him for being subscribed to the YouTube channel. Nice little bankroll builder, like 50 bucks. Yep. Solid 50 clip. Uh, Hopefully he plays us in the head-to-heads and gives us that back. Yeah, so. <laughs> 100%. Um, and we'll, we'll have some more giveaways to announce soon. Yeah, so let's get into this recap. Joey, how did you do on the slate? Yeah, so it was a solid day for me overall. I ended up cashing in every single contest that I played, uh, tournaments and double-ups. I won 65% of my head-to-heads and a 49.30% ROI on the day, profiting $160 off of $298 in entry fees. So a solid day. And then also if the listeners have followed me or listened to the last episode, I also bet $220 on the Bills minus six. I called it an easy lock and there was no sweat with that. The Bills just controlled that entire game against the Jets. So I ended up winning $200 on that. So in total on the day, I ended up winning $360 across betting and DFS. So I'll take that any day of the week. That is a solid paycheck. Yeah, that's a vibe. I mean, anytime you can cash in 100%, I mean, you're you're sitting pretty. I also had a really strong week uh, from a cash game perspective. I put up 185.1 points, absolutely smashed the cash line, which was in the $25 single entry 152. So a good uh, 33 points over that 87% win rate, 78% ROI on my cash line also had some GPP success and uh, Mm. talked about it at the top of the show, banked a GPP. It was a low dollar entry. It was the three max triple option, a $3 buy-in, put up a massive total of 238.76 points that was enough to get it done about nine points ahead of second place and that was a thousand dollars that also came in second in another three dollar entry so in totality uh six dollars on a lineup turned into seventeen hundred fifty Yeah, that is a great payday, especially on only $6. But I have a question for you. Mm -hmm. Are you tilted that if you entered that lineup into, say, like the $12 single entry or maybe your $200 single entry contest that you would be sitting with 50 G's or 100 G's instead of two? I mean, winning $2,000 on a slate is already incredible, especially if you're like three or four Xing, which you did. But 50 G's or 100 G's is, you know, you're not working for the next year and you're only doing DFS. Yeah. I mean, so it's twofold. Like, yes, obviously, I I wish that that had been the lineup that I put into, like you said, like the $200 single entry, that tournament that had a bunch of overlay on DraftKings or, you know, even even like, yeah, like the $12 or the $27 single entry. But one, it's a slate specific thing. Usually, I don't believe that I'm good enough at knowing whether my GPP lineups are going to be good or not to, you know, put a vast amount of money behind one over the other. So, you know, usually I'm not playing in a $200 single entry and then playing a bunch of like $12, $15 lineups on the side. Usually I'll maybe have like 10 lineups all with the same amount of money on them. You know, this was a slate specific thing because they had that great tournament as a promotion for week one. Now, Yes, like I said, obviously wish that I had capitalized more because that two 
38 was enough to, you know, bank in a lot of tournaments. Like that would have far and away been the best lineup in that $200 single entry. That being said, I'm not going to be mad at, you know, turning $6 into 1750. And I think it's just like a bankroll thing. Like, yes, if I put every lineup into the Millie Maker that I played, I think overall that would be a losing equation. You know, I think that contest selection is important and ultimately just spreading it across evenly is the optimal in my opinion. And normally that is what I do. It was just, again, a function of having unique tournaments that caused me to put larger amounts of my GPP bankroll into specific tournaments rather than spreading it around as usual. But I'm not, I'm not going to be mad at it. You know, it's like it's it's a process. Yeah. Thing. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely the right process, in my opinion, to have multiple lineups across multiple contests. So obviously, you can't blame me for that, but it obviously sucks, you know, when that lineup that you entered in that $3 contest would have came in third in the Millie Maker and, and netted you 50 grand. So, yeah, definitely. I mean, I obviously get where you're coming from, but. You know, it just sucks that that you couldn't capitalize on winning a, a lot more money. But hey, there's always next week, right? There is. And funny thing about that lineup, Joey, is that, you know, I talked about how right right around 1230, my process might be firing off some some last minute entries. Joey, this was the last lineup that I made. Came very close to not putting this lineup out at all. Uh, it was a Aaron Rodgers to Devontae Adams stack. And really the reasoning was like, I have all these tournament teams and Devontae Adams is my favorite play on the slate. And I largely faded him in GPPs because I was trying to mm-hmm. differentiate from my cash lineup. But I, I just had this, you know, little thought cross my mind. I'm like, hey, I love Devontae Adams. Let me at least get one Rodgers stack in case he really pops off. And thank God that I did that. Threw it in a couple of like three dollars that I saw that were still in the uh, in the lobby and yeah that the rest is history. So you know thank thank God that random thought crossed my mind like a half hour before lock or else it would have just been an average day. And I think just from the week one slate, uh, Aaron Rodgers was definitely overlooked in his matchup against the Vikings. I think a lot of people saw his recent performances against the Vikings and you know were off of him because of those performances but as we know past performance does not indicate future success and the vikings are were a team that lost their top three options in the secondary so we should have saw an aaron Rodgers snap game coming especially since they also drafted a the, you know his his apparent his hair to the throne in the first round of the draft so chip on roger's shoulders and i and i guess as a fantasy community or in the DFS community we overlooked Rodgers this week so we absolutely did and he was like a natural lineup construction thing because Devontae Adams who was one of the chalkiest and clear best plays on the slate as everybody clearly knew uh, but nobody was playing the quarterback I mean Aaron Rodgers was two percent owned in that contest Mm -hmm. so so it's like we all love his number one wide receiver but we don't love him and you know there there were low ownership bringbacks in cook who i went with and thielen who would have been even better uh but but even still i mean just just definitely an oversight and maybe if we had been on him a little bit more uh we would have had some more lineups out there to reflect that yeah (laughs) so for me i ended up cashing in my tournaments i only played in four uh two of those being the millie maker and then two single entry contests and i ended up just running one tournament lineup um in one cash lineup and i'm obviously gonna change that in the following weeks but since i only played a low tournament volume this week i only i just decided to run one lineup 
and you kind of convinced me on a Trubisky stack, and he ended up actually hitting value in the fourth quarter up against your Lions, finished with 24 points, uh, but Allen Robinson fell short for me, and I also played Anthony Miller and brought it back with TJ Hawkinson, who were great plays. Ball in all, my tournament lineup ended with 161 points, which was good enough to at least min cash, so I didn't lose any of my tournaments. I, I min cashed in all of them, but no million dollars for me over here. So, but there's always next week. I got faith mm-hmm. in you that you're gonna hit that milli. In a moment here, we'll get into the final two parts of our show where we review some of the slate decision points and then look at a couple of the interesting stats coming out of week one and determine whether we think that they are trends indicative of what is to come or simply small sample size traps. But last note that I need to make in terms of this GPP talk, Joey, part of my winning lineup at 2.3% owned was Logan Thomas. Yeah, Logan Thomas, my boy. I mean, if anybody has listened to the podcast in the off season, I hyped up Logan Thomas in one of the intros that we did for one of the uh, best ball episodes, and, and he came him the next Darren Waller. He came through for you today, and actually, I'm trying to find our text right now where I got clowned at for nah, playing nah, nah. Logan I was, Thomas. I, I was, yeah, I was, uh, yeah, this morning. This morning. In cash, in cash, in cash. In cash. Great play in cash. I will Uh. say that. I'm always going to pay down to a starting tight end that is going to play 90% of snaps. Just that simple. But 2.8K, Logan Thomas, fit in your lineup. And yeah, I'd I'd like to uh, think that I have a part in, in you playing him with that Logan Thomas discussion, probably before you made that lineup since it was your last lineup that you made. 100%. And you put him on my radar in the offseason. You are the tight end whisperer. So I'm always going to give some value to your tight end takes. And I mean, this dude, Logan Thomas, led the Washington football team in target. So I mean, I think he's in for a pretty decent season as a guy who went undrafted in baseball and season draft a lot of the time. So I mean, he's shaping up to be another dub for you in terms of tight end predictions. So that's pretty awesome. But uh, let's... Move on to this next part of the podcast where we're going to talk about some of the key decision points, the keys to the slate. And uh, I'll start off by just talking about the guys who ended up being high owned. I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast, if you're playing DFS consistently, you're looking at ownership ahead of time. And a lot of these guys, almost all of them, I would say, actually were the guys that you would have expected to be high owned. But the highest owned guys on the slate, Boston Scott, 61.4%, Josh Jacobs, 50.7%. Devontae Adams, 44.9. Lamar Jackson, Terry McLaurin, and Deshaun Jackson, all between 30 and 31. Antonio Gibson, Christian McCaffrey, and Marquise Brown, all sitting around 20. And then Alvin Kamara and DK Metcalf at 18%. Everybody else was 15 or lower, I would say. And those percentages are coming from a cash game perspective, looking at the large field, $25 single entry double up. So the thing that I want to start off with here, Joey, is Antonio Gibson. We noted him as a fade from day one. We've been talking about fading him in best ball. We've been talking about fading him in week one. I thought when Boston Scott became available after Miles Sanders was ruled out that people would get off of Antonio Gibson. But it seems like what the majority of people did instead was play both of them, Antonio Gibson and Boston Scott, and use that extra salary to jam both 
or one of Christian McCaffrey and Lamar Jackson. And so, I mean, how do you feel about that as a play? Do you think it was right or wrong from a process standpoint before we even get into the results? Yeah, I mean, from a process standpoint, I'm going to stick by it and say that it is wrong or or it was wrong. I should say, I mean, like you said, we were on the fade Antonio Gibson train all week. I had absolutely zero shares of Antonio Gibson in my two lineups. I was not playing a running back on a bad offense in a running back by committee. And we saw that in full effect today. Peyton Barber got touches. JD McKissick got touches. Antonio Gibson got touches. And then Gibson got taken out at the goal line in favor of Peyton Barber, who ended up with two rushing touchdowns. So I think the process with fading Antonio Gibson was correct, especially since Boston Scott became available at 4.8K with Miles Sanders being ruled out. But even with that being said, Scott, who was the highest owned player on the slate, I actually texted you the night before and said that Scott was a bad play. Now, speak to that because because I, I honestly viewed him as the best point per dollar play on the slate uh, prior to the events of today. Yeah. So, I mean, when I when I texted you that I was just going over, you know, the slate and the projected injuries and whatnot. And the Eagles losing three of their starting offensive linemen going up against this Washington front seven who ended up uh, recording eight or nine sacks. I forget which one it was, but I I know they had you know a good amount of sacks and three takeaways so going up against this elite Washington front seven I thought Boston Scott was going to have a terrible day on the ground and then his value would strictly come from the receiving game but I was just down on the entire Eagles offense uh, due to the injuries that they had and and it worked out I mean the process on that was right um in my opinion I mean I ended up playing Scott in my lineup because I'm obviously going to play a 4.8k running back that's starting and he's in an every down role with reception upside but I felt like the matchup just was not there for Scott and you know the the results ended up proving that to be true but Still played him and still scored 20 points over the cash line, which I thought was extremely low for a week one. And and when we were talking about Boston Scott via text, uh, I mean, we were referring to tournaments because I, I think that since neither of us were on Antonio Gibson, oh. I mean, Scott was just a, a pure lock in terms of cash, though, because we, oh, yes. we needed to free up that salary. But in tournaments, though, you know, that Terrible. was the real question is, and, and I agree with you. And after you said that to me, I you know, scaled back my exposure in tournaments. I still played him some because I thought that despite the injuries to the Eagles, that might force them to get the ball out really quickly as Wentz would be under a lot of pressure. And maybe, you know, Boston Scott could leave with, you know, eight to 10 targets at the top of his range for tournaments. But even still at such high ownership, I thought it was pretty smart to get off of him. And going back a little bit to the Gibson point and people who played both Gibson and Scott and cash, the real downfall of that play in retrospect was that it most likely got you off of Josh Jacobs, who was the best play at running back on the slate. Because if you were playing both Gibson and Scott, you were most likely clearing that salary to fit in Christian McCaffrey, who McCaffrey, you know, good play, right? But he had 28 points. You know, that's that's great for any player, but it wasn't even 3xing his value at 10k. Whereas if you can get 35 points out of Josh Jacobs at 6.8k, which I think, you know, maybe we weren't expecting 35 plus, but we knew that he was the clear cut best running back play on the slate. Getting off of him due to jamming in those two cheap running backs was a major, major downfall of, of that lineup construction. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, I made it a priority to get Jacobs into both of my lineups. In hindsight, if I were to play more tournaments, Jacobs would have easily been my highest owned player across every single tournament lineup. Um, just the pure best play on the slate, in my opinion, uh, with the pure best matchup in a workhorse role in Oakland. What also is inspiring for Josh Jacobs' outlook on the rest of the season is four catches on six targets. And I know that we've talked about this on the podcast, but if Josh Jacobs can get four, five, six targets a game, this is going to be an elite RB1 every single week. And if they keep on pricing him around 68, 7,000, it's going to be an auto lock every single week. And, and he was just too cheap for the work, uh, the workhorse role that he was in. And I will say, I am very surprised that I saw some very sharp DFS people in the community fade Josh Jacobs in cash. I will say that I did not think that would happen. Um, I, I thought he was the biggest lock in cash besides Devontae Adams. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly not to toot my own horn, but if if you do read my cash game article, I put a couple of the priority plays, the guys that I think are absolutely imperative to jam in, had both Devontae Adams and Josh Jacobs on that list. I thought mm-hmm. that they were imperative to play this week in cash games. And speaking of Devontae Adams, I mean, goddamn, this man just went absolutely crazy very predictable like if you didn't play him i don't i don't know what to tell you (laughs) but but joey over 50 percent of the field didn't play him like i said in the 25 dollars single entry double up he was only 44.9 percent owned and he proceeded to have a 38.6 percent market share of targets in that offense absolutely insane 14 catches for 156 yards and two touchdown on 17 targets did you ever consider fading Devontae Adams because of the strength of the mid-range wide receivers or were you like me just you know locked in on Adams from the start yeah I was locked in on Devontae from the start I I thought you know from when the price is released that he was one of the clear-cut best plays on the slate and honestly 7,300 for a wide receiver with Devontae Adams floor and ceiling combo in an offense where he is the alpha receiver where there's nobody commanding targets besides him and I know we touched on it in the preview episode and I know I talked about how uh, I don't project for Lazard or any of the other options to be to go over six targets and that was true no other wide receiver besides Adams went over six targets so this is Adams team and he's always going to lead the Packers in targets just an outstanding play this week and he produced at a very high level uh going up against a terrible viking secondary which is going to be a target for us all year long absolutely and i mean if they don't price them up to the 8500 plus range he's gonna 9, be a 000. stone lock again against the decrepit detroit lions defense next week as well but we will talk about that on the thursday preview show joey is there anything else in terms of decision points on this slate you want to get to before we get into some interesting stats from the week yeah i mean personally i just made it a priority to jam in cmc and i feel like ultimately i had the right build with cmc josh jacobs 
and Devontae Adams all in my cash game lineup. And those are three players that I believed had incredible floor slash ceiling combos for cash games. And it ended up working out in the end, even though I did play Tyrod Taylor, who I know we talked about. And and his ceiling is obviously very low. Like he's not a good quarterback and the Chargers offense is not good with him at the helm. And I still ended up dropping 171 points with a nine burger from my starting quarterback. So that just jamming CMC in was, was a point for me personally. And, and I thought that that was fine. I did not want to do it personally because uh, really of two reasons. One, I loved the mid range wide receivers, not enough to get off of Devonte Adams, but enough to not feel comfortable playing uh, Deshaun Jackson. I did not feel comfortable with Marquise Brown ahead of time. Uh, due to the questions about his volume. And although he did turn in a great game, he did so on only six targets. I don't know if that's like a standard play that I would make in cash a lot of the time. And also at tight end, I viewed TJ Hawkinson after the loss of Kenny Galladay as almost a must play. I did not want to pay down to Herndon anymore. I didn't view Logan Thomas as cash viable, even though I liked him for tournaments. And I and I prioritized getting in a quality wide receiver three above 5.6K. McLaurin and Metcalf was who I played other than Adams. And I prioritized getting in Hawkinson. And, you know, as a result, I wasn't able to get up to CMC, but I was able to play Josh Jacobs, Boston Scott, and Joe Mixon. Obviously, Mixon did not have a great game, only finished with 7.1 points. Very disappointing from him. Um, But in that same range was Camaro, who would have been just as good, I think. Um, Ultimately, yeah, like McCaffrey's always going to score that, but we do need to see his his receptions go up, I think. And I think we can transition here into trend or trap. One of the interesting trends was, I think, the elite pass-catching running back seeing reduced targets this week. Christian McCaffrey only had four targets. He only had four targets or less twice in all of 2019. Another one was Austin Eckler, who only had one target, his lowest number since late 2018. Do you think that those are trends and that these guys will be scaled back in that way, or are these simply one-week samples and we should probably not overreact to them? Yeah, I I think it's the latter part. Um, I don't think we should overreact, especially with CMC. This is a guy who we've seen be an elite pass-catching running back. That's his game. That That's his bag, as you say. So I'm not stressing that CMC had four targets, although the Panthers' offense did take shots down the field. I know Robbie Anderson scored a long touchdown and had uh, nine targets or so, and DJ Moore also had a good amount of targets. So maybe his receptions or targets, I should say, do get scaled back. But in terms of Eckler, I think we can see Eckler's target projection uh, significantly decrease, especially if Tyrod Taylor, a complete trash can (laughs) at quarterback. Tyrod Taylor is a guy who just does not target running backs whatsoever. But Austin Eckler did have his most rushing yards that he's ever had in a game. So that's obviously encouraging that they're willing to give him more than 15 attempts on the ground. But it's also discouraging that they took him out in the red zone and specifically at the goal line for Joshua Kelly, uh, which which is truly unfortunate. So it's looking like Eckler is going to be a weekly fade candidate as long as Tyrod Trashcan Taylor is is the starting quarterback for the Chargers. Yeah, he he really didn't look good to be honest. And I know another guy that you were considering in cash prior to putting Tyrod in your lineup was Cam Newton. Cam Newton, mm-hmm. the new face of the New England Patriots. Your 
favorite team. So do you want to talk about what we saw out of Cam Newton this week? Yeah, I mean, we're going to see the Patriots transition into like a baby Baltimore Ravens theme. They're not going to throw the ball a ton. This is going to be an offense that is centered around the run game, centered around the read option game with Cam Newton, especially in the red zone. We saw him score two rushing touchdowns within the 10-yard line this week. And, you know, I think that's what we're going to see. Now, he did rush 15 times, which I don't think is sustainable. I think we'll see him around the 8 to 12 attempt mark each and every game, especially when they face better teams like the Seahawks uh, next week in Sunday night football. So the pass attempts are obviously going to go up. But if we see Cam Newton uh, running like he did today with Josh McDaniels, a guy who is going to scheme up great plays for Cam Newton, who is a great runner, the sky's the limit for Cam Newton in DFS. And I mean, we've seen it in years prior where he's averaged, you know, like 24 DraftKings points in the season due to his rushing ability. So at 6.1K, I wanted to play him so bad. He was my preferred quarterback. I just did not have the salary unless I played Rieger instead of DJX, which, you know, in hindsight would have been you know, the same outcome for those two. But yeah, that's my take on Cam Newton. I think I want to see it a little bit before I will say that it's a trend to expect him to have the type of rushing volume that sits in like the 15 rush attempts per game, you know, average. But I mean, if even that is like an outlier performance, but he is sitting in the like eight to 12 rush attempts range, he's going to be one of the highest floor quarterback options every single week and the ceiling will be there too as we saw he can obviously punch it in inside the 10 so i mean cam newton's outlook for dfs and for fantasy in general is just sky high speaking of another player with sky high ceiling right now deandre hopkins my god this man had a 40% market share of the Arizona Cardinals team targets. Career high, 14 receptions in a single game for 151 yards and had a long touchdown catch called back. People thought that his targets would come down after switching to a scheme that usually is about spreading the ball around, but it turns out that sharp coaches alter their schemes to favor elite playmakers. And I think that Cliff Kingsbury is a sharp coach. Joey, do you think that this you know, massive market share of team targets for DeAndre Hopkins is sustainable for him going forward. No, I don't I don't think forty percent is sustainable, but DeAndre Hopkins is obviously an elite wide receiver one. And the Cardinals made it a point to get him the ball. Now do I think he will see sixteen targets, forty percent market share? No. But do I think he will sit around twenty five percent? Yes. And even twenty five percent of targets in this Cardinals offense is an elite play every single week on DraftKings, especially when they have easier matchups. Um, I know they fit, they faced the Niners, which was a tough matchup. That's why a lot of people were off of DeAndre Hopkins and DFS, but he ended up torching them. And this is a matchup proof wide receiver one every single week. And if his price is depressed, I will make it a point to get him into my tournament lineups in the following weeks. I I agree with that for sure. I think that, you know, people were always kind of wrong about him and that he is the type of elite talent that, you know, he's not just going to be getting the same type of targets that Christian Kirk is just because that's what the impression of the Cardinals offense is is that they spread it around. No, DeAndre Hopkins is a different type of beast and he is going to command those targets as we clearly saw today. Speaking of some other, you know, dominant target shares or at least targets in general, let's talk about these Falcons guys. 
Julio Jones, Calvin Ridley, and Russell Gage each had 12 targets. Now, do I think that Russell Gage will sustainably have the same amount of targets as Julio Jones and Calvin Ridley? I do not, but I do think it is interesting that Jones and Ridley each had 12 targets. Do you think that this is a situation where Julio Jones is no longer the clear number one and that these guys are maybe more 1A, 1B slash co-wide receiver ones, say, you know, like DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett, for example, that we saw in that same game? Man, I I just don't want to disrespect Julio by putting him as a 1A wide receiver and I will say, I just think each three of them having 12 targets was just a product of the Falcons being down the entire game. Um, I, I would still project Julio to be the target monster in the Falcons offense, but Calvin Ridley is right behind him. But I, I don't know if I feel comfortable putting, putting him as the 1B yet, but he's definitely a high number two option. Uh, but they definitely benefited, like I said, from from being down in this game and Matt Ryan throwing the ball 54 times. But that was easily predictable, like we talked about in the preview episode. This is a Falcons team that wants to throw the ball, and they have shown that time and time again. Yeah, I am a little more likely to believe that Calvin Ridley is entering what is part of his career where he starts to spike, and Julio Jones, naturally due to age, I think is probably going to be on the decline sooner rather than later. So I am willing to believe that this is potentially a trend where we could see weeks where Ridley out targets Julio and weeks where Julio out targets Ridley. But I guess we will wait and see on that. The really interesting thing though, I think is that Russell Gage proved to be the clear number three option, not Hayden Hurst as a lot of people mm-hmm. naturally assumed. Yeah. So I definitely believe that Hayden Hurst would be the third option in that Falcons offense above Russell Gage. But if the Falcons are losing and I texted in the group chat that the Falcons just are a terrible team. I think we just have to come to that realization. They're going to be losing in a lot of games, which means they're going to be running three wide receiver sets like it's nobody's business. And as long as they're running those three wide receiver sets, Russell Gage is going to be on the field for 80, 85, 90% of the snaps, which will in turn get him targets. It's just that simple, especially on a team that's going to throw 40, 50 times a game. Uh, So yeah, Russell Gage is the third option in Atlanta, and we just have to consider that moving forward, especially in DFS. And if they keep him in the 4K range, he could be a great play every single week until they uh, increase his price. Yeah, absolutely. We'll have to look at that for sure as the Falcons-Cowboys game is going to be the premier game of the week to slate. I don't believe that prices are out yet, or if they are, I haven't looked at them. So we'll get into that for sure in depth on the Thursday preview show. Uh, two more running back notes before we get out of here, Joey. The first one, which you can tell me your thoughts on, I'm really interested to hear, is Kareem Hunt, who out-touched Nick Chubb in this game. But not only did he out-touch him, he out-carried him. You know, I think that we all expected him to, you know, out-target Nick Chubb on a regular basis, and that isn't shocking that he did so in a negative game script as the Browns were getting dominated all day long by the Ravens. But to see that Kareem Hunt had 13 attempts and Nick Chubb only had 10 that is really interesting to me what do you make of that yeah I mean I think that's just because the Browns were losing right from the jump and the Ravens got out to a big lead early on so I think that is a function of why Kareem Hunt was on the field for essentially 50% of the snaps and moving forward I think Nick Chubb's snap share 
will decrease. I think it'll be around 60% if I had to project right now. And, and, you know, what I make from this situation is that Nick Chubb is strictly a guy that is going to run the ball and Kareem Hunt is going to be a guy that is strictly the pass catching back, but will mix in some rush attempts in there. Uh, so this basically even split between these two great running backs is not an ideal situation for fantasy football at all. Definitely not. And and it would be hard to play Nick Chubb in any sort of, you know, like cash game format yeah, unless no. their Browns are projected to win. And if they're mm-hmm. playing like they looked like today, that's going to be really difficult to ever project them to be in a favorable game script. For sure. I mean, just going off topic real quick, Baker Mayfield looks like he has not taken a step forward. Um, the Browns offense looked absolutely terrible. And if he doesn't make an improvement this season, the Browns should look to move up in the draft and maybe, you know, Trevor Lawrence. Uh, I'm just saying. I mean, you know, if they play like they played today, they might not have to move up too far. Yeah, I mean, just like we talk about sharp coaches and you mentioned Cliff Kingsbury might be a sharp coach and the Arizona organization was sharp for moving on from Josh Rosen just a year after they drafted him in the first round in the top 12. Maybe we could see the Browns move on, you know, if they're sharp, move on from the number one overall pick. That would be shocking know. to me because I don't know. I think it might be sharp. Hot take. <laughs> that is a hot, hot take. take. I mean, Mayfield showed so much as a rookie, but at this point, we're kind of running out of excuses. It is only one game, such though. such a loaded, loaded offense. But yeah, I mean, it is uh, it is one game, and it is one of the tougher matchups going against the Ravens. But mm-hmm. I guess we'll see. Uh, so we started that off talking about Kareem Hunt and Nick Chubb. Let's talk about another messy backfield. This one hurts my heart. Uh, the Detroit Lions. I am a Lions homer, even though, you know, every day that passes, my soul becomes more and more detached from them. Um, you know, I was very happy when Anthony Miller scored that game ceiling touchdown and helped me bank a GPP. Didn't care that the Lions lost one bit in that moment. But alas, let's talk about these running backs for the Lions. And this is just a complete and utter mess. Carrion Johnson starts the game, but has the least amount of touches. Seven attempts, zero targets. Adrian Peterson, second in rotation has the most touches, 17 touches, 14 attempts, and three receptions for over a hundred yards. And then DeAndre Swift, you know, the talented rookie second round pick, the guy that everybody likes the most in this group, was third in rotation, has seven attempts, same as Carrion, adds three receptions on the most targets out of the group. He had five targets, but also dropped the game winning touchdown. You know, just an absolute show on every single level. I mean, I don't see how you could ever consider playing these guys in fantasy until something changes in this you know whether it's via injury or whether it's next year and this becomes a two two back committee but i mean this is just ugly it's just really ugly this is another situation to avoid in fantasy football and i mean matt patricia uh, as the lions head coach has always utilized some form of running back by committee i mean last year we saw carry on johnson and like Bo scarborough get touches and some other washed up scrubs um and ap who they signed off the streets last week comes in and leads the backfield in 17 touches. And then you have arguably the most talented running back from the 2020 draft come in. He only gets 10 touches, drops a game winning touchdown. And God knows with Matt Patricia, how far he's going to put him in the doghouse after that, after a clear cut drop, a catch that I would have made 100% would have made, um, just inexcusable drop. 
And and that just seems to be the story of the Lions each and every year. Uh, just terrible and. Yeah, just avoiding it at all costs until one of them gets injured and, and then the other one maybe becomes maybe becomes a workhorse. Probably not. Yeah, it might take two injuries for that. But uh yeah, I mean God, just just so disappointing to see Adrian Peterson come in and get seventeen touches, uh, and lead that backfield. Just just a goddamn shame to be honest. Matt Patricia might be the biggest donkey of all time. I know. And he's, I was, he's so, up I in was the so hype when they signed him. I was like, yeah, bring some of that Patriots wisdom over here. Let's get winning. No, exact opposite. <laughs> exact opposite. But yeah, man, I think that's going to be it for us today. Uh, you know, have a, I'm glad that we brought these back. We did these in our first season, took a year off from doing the recap show and decided to bring it back for year three. And I think that that was the right choice. I, I like looking back at the slate, getting an early jump on some of the key statistics from the week and recapping our process and results for the people so they know that we have good information. And I mean, we, we smashed in cash games this week and we hit on all of our bets. Your bet was the uh, Bills minus six and a half. I also had that same thing. I was right there with you. And I also had Lions over uh, in that game, which was 43 total and it went up to 50. So, I -hmm. mean, we really just smashed in every single way, not to take a huge victory lap. But I mean, let's go. Great week one. I think this is like the first week one where I've profited in like the last five years. So I'll take it. And I won all of my fantasy matchups too. So let's go. That's nice. That's nice. And and I think that it's because we put in more work this offseason than we ever have. Mm -hmm. At least I have. And I think that you have as well. I mean, we we were grinding all offseason and it showed. For sure. For sure. Sailing to the money, baby. Yeah. Yeah, we are. And yeah, so that's going to be it for us. Like Joey said at the top of the show, you can subscribe to this podcast on any podcast platform, the podcast platform that you're listening to right now. Just drop a sub, leave a rating and review if you're feeling generous. You can also subscribe to us on YouTube. Check out the DFSDose.com for all of our content, including my cash game article, which comes out every Friday and is updated throughout the weekend. And yeah, I mean, that's the best way to support us. We do appreciate it. And you can also follow our personal Twitters. Mine is at Ben Hover, B-E-N-H-A-U-V-E-R. Joey, tell them where they can find you. You can find me on Twitter at Joey Carrion, D-F-S. We will be back on Thursday to preview the week to slate, and we'll talk to you then.